Well, hello everyone. It's lovely to be with you again. Um, when I was writing this talk, I didn't yet know if England was going to be in the World Cup final um, or whether um, if they were in the final, if there would be a general sense of um, jubilation or devastation going into this service. So it was really interesting um, to open my Bible and find that the passage that we have tonight is set following uh, a time of immense jubilation, uh, of awe and wonder, of can this really be happening kind of feelings, but that this uh, incident itself um, that we read about has kind of tipped to the other end of the spectrum into fear and doubt and storms. So whether you're still smarting from Wednesday's result or whether you've never been happier that we can talk about something other than football, uh, then there's something for you tonight. As in most passages, uh, the context of the story is really important. What's happened immediately before the passage that we read uh, is is the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus turns five loaves of bread and two fish into a picnic for 5,000 men, and probably at least that again in women and children. It's a bit of an understatement to say that this would have caused quite a stir. It's not that Jesus hadn't done any miracles uh, before. Uh, In in John alone, we'd already read of him um, healing a man on the Sabbath, uh, the revelation to the the woman at the well, and of course turning um, water into wine. But those miracles were on a very small scale, a private scale, The feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 plus people, was was 5,000 people. We're talking about serious excitement. Imagine what it would have been like um, in this country if we had been in tonight's final and and we'd won. We've been waiting for a men's, not women's though, men's World Cup win for 52 years. But the Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah for 400 years. Um, and so then, and then this miracle happens and there is this level of excitement. The mood was so jubilant that following um, following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has to slip away because the crowd wants to forcibly make him into a king right then and there with all the kind of socio-political uh, ramifications that would have come with that kind of gesture. But after the euphoria, after the high, after the miracle and the possibility of hope, there was a storm. And so tonight, even though it's lovely weather, we are going to talk about storms. The middle of verse 17 begins, By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. Uh, uh, Did I? Yes, I think I missed that. Hang on, let me, 17. Sorry. Um, By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. Oh, that's right. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew grew rough. So the disciples have just had this experience that could not have been anything short of mind-blowing. But now Jesus has left them alone. John doesn't say why the disciples finally left in the boat without Jesus, um, but the other accounts in Matthew and Mark both say that Jesus asked them to go. 
And rowing across the the sea at night was something that as fishermen, uh, it wouldn't have seemed like a particularly difficult or unexpected thing to do. But then came a storm. I think that sometimes we want or maybe even expect the Christian life to be a bit like the feeding of the 5,000. Variations on the theme of we have a problem, we pray, God shows up some, God shows up and fixes everything, we have all our material and emotional needs met, uh, and lots of people become followers of Jesus. And that does happen sometimes in varying patterns and scales. God is a powerful, loving, caring, glorious God. And he does work powerfully in the world, in the church, and in our lives. I can't tell you the number of times in tiny and in huge and in every way in between ways that I've seen God work like this. Many of you will know that Dave has just been, uh, Dave's my husband, has just been, um, he's just started as the vicar of Swainswick. Circumstances that led up to his appointment, the nature of the role, the incredible house and garden and school um, that go along with the appointment can be described as nothing short of miraculous for our family. I could not have planned it with any more precision if I had tried. And believe me, I try and do a lot of planning. It was a feeding of the 5,000 moment. But the God who fed the 5,000 left his disciples alone to sail into a storm. And isn't this our own experience? Who here can say that they have never been through a storm? Who here can say that they've gone from blessing to blessing, having never touched grief or fear or devastation or hopelessness? Who can say they've never heard the soft whisper of the evil one saying, If God loves you so much, why did he let this happen to you? There will be those here tonight who can see the storm clouds building on the horizon. There will be those here tonight who have endured the storm and are finally on the shore. There will be those here tonight who are clinging desperately to the rails of the boat wondering if the next wave will be the one that sweeps them over. God doesn't keep us from storms. Later in John, Jesus himself promises us, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus' disciples themselves and countless other Christians throughout history and today in places like Nigeria India, Sudan, Iraq, North Korea, Somalia, uh, many others um, suffer immensely for being a follower of Jesus. Tonight we've dedicated Finn to God, committing to nurture his faith in our amazing, powerful, sovereign, loving, and compassionate God. But we have not guaranteed him a life without storms. And if our vision of who God is only lets him be the God who feeds the 5,000, but not the God who lets us sail into storms, then we, are not on, we will not only have an impoverished view of who God is, but we run the risk of, um, of, of having a faith that holds only when things are generally okay. 
as parents and as adults in a church family in which we're all called to be spiritual parents, we need to get our heads around what it is and what it means to serve a God who doesn't keep us from all the storms. We need to get our hearts around what it is to have a God who comes to us in the storm, who rides in the storm, who stills the storm. Because, do you know, it is actually really hard to talk to our children about their own storms if we struggle to to trust God in our own. But what a witness we can be to them if we can talk to them about the rain and the wind and the fear and how we invited Jesus into our boat. So, God doesn't keep us from storms, but he is with us in the storm. Verses 19 to 20 say, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus has been up by himself on the mountainside after he slipped away, praying to his father, untouched by the squall of the, on the sea. And he's either able to see the boat struggling, um, or the father has revealed to, uh, to him that the disciples are in trouble on the lake. And he goes to them. But did you notice that he actually isn't all that welcome at first? In fact, when Jesus first shows up, the, shows up, the disciples seem to be more afraid of the Savior than of the storm. How often do we do this? I told you about the amazing provision of our house and job in Swainswick, but I did not tell you all of it. Because just over a year ago, we were still living in Cambridgeshire, and I was due to start my midwifery course very shortly. We actually had a house here in Weston all lined up to rent, uh, and we were due to be moving in two weeks' time. And we got a call from the estate agent to say that the house had all fallen through. And with a removal deadline looming, we suddenly had nowhere to live. I don't probably need to tell you that it was pretty stressful, nor do you probably have to work very hard to imagine that Dave handled this whole situation a lot more calmly than I did. I will never forget him saying, I just wish we could make this decision about, um, make this decision based on what we feel God calling us to rather than stress and panic. To which I replied, well, God had his chance, and now we just need to make a decision because we are going to be homeless. Within an hour of that conversation, the phone rang unexpectedly with another estate agent offering us the house that we had been in in Woolley until recently at a price we could afford, uh, and so began the entire chain of events that has led to Dave being appointed as the vicar of Woolley in Swainswick. Jesus had come walking on the water to me, and I was more afraid of the Savior than the storm. When Jesus arrives at the boat, he says two things. The first is, it is I. This is, of course, a a way of identifying himself. But in the Greek, the formulation also echoes God's own way of identifying himself in the Old Testament as Yahweh, I am who I am. 
The second thing he says is, don't be afraid. He doesn't say, how did you get yourself into this situation? Or, here's a ten-step, here's a ten-step action plan. Or, next time you should try this. He doesn't even say, everything's gonna be okay. He just says, don't be afraid. And that's what he says to us, too. Don't be afraid. It's a statement that is so simple and yet requires radical faith that God is who he says he is, that he is I am who I am. Faith that he is both powerful, faith that he is good. Faith that whatever happens, he will be in the boat with us, in the storm with us. It's impossible to talk about God being with us in the storm without talking about the cross. Because at the cross, God came to us in the storm of all storms. The storm of all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt. And rather than let us suffer it, he took the full brunt of the storm himself. Because of who God is, because of what he has done on the cross... We can trust him in the storm. So God doesn't keep us from storms. He's with us in the storm. But he also redeems the storm. Verse 21 says, Then then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is one of those weird Bible moments when you read a story that you know really well, you think you know how it ends, and then you're writing a sermon and it actually doesn't end that way. In Matthew and Mark's account of this event, Jesus calms the storm and then has a little chat with the disciples about faith. But here in John, though we assume the storm stops, how he actually reports it is that the boat suddenly arrives at the opposite shore where they were heading all along. There's disagreement among commentators about whether the boat did actually miraculously transcribe itself to the shore or whether the disciples were so awed, amazed, and bewildered by the whole situation that it just seemed like it was all of a sudden. One commentator in the former camp said something along the lines of, I hardly think that after stilling the storm, Jesus would sit down in the boat and be rowed back to shore. But to me, that seems exactly like the kind of thing that Jesus was doing all the time. The extraordinary in the ordinary. I mean, after he rose from the dead, one of the first things he did did was to make his disciples a cooked breakfast. So I don't know how it happened, and neither is anyone alive today. But what the text tells us is that they were in a storm, and then with Jesus in the boat... They were safe. And I think that's probably enough. Because sometimes when Jesus shows up in the storms of our lives, he does immediately bring us to the shore. And I think sometimes he sits down in the boat and rows the long, hard way out with us. But when Jesus is in our boat, we are safe. 
John doesn't give us any commentary here, commentary here about um, what the disciples said or thought or how they reacted to Jesus walking on the water and, um, and calming of the storm. Matthew and Mark are a bit more forthcoming and talk about their amazement and their growing understanding of who Jesus was and what he was doing. But I think sometimes, maybe most times, there's no particular point to the storms in our lives. Everything has a reason is a mantra that's bandied about, but that idea is a dangerous simplification of the idea of God's sovereignty. God does not will us harm. But what is true is that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And what is also true is that God comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Though it's hard in the midst of a storm to see it, God redeems those storms. He uses the storms in our lives to work for our good. And when we trust him, when we invite him into the boat, we will come safely to the shore. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are who you say you are. Lord, it's, uh, I don't think we can thank you for those storms, but we thank you that you are always working for our good. That what the enemy has meant for evil, you have, have meant for our good. You have worked for our good. And so, Lord, I pray that in the storm that we would trust you, that we would invite you into the boat. I pray that you would bring us safely to the shore. In your name we pray. Amen.